Surely this has happened to you some Christmas. You go to a gathering at your work, at your school, with some family. You're going to exchange gifts. Someone gives you a gift that you can tell they thought about it a great deal. They know you. They know your tastes. It scores. You, on the other hand, have lacked time or money or been pressed or maybe was just lazy. And therefore, you ran out and grabbed the first thing off the shelf that you could think of that really wasn't very appropriate. And then when you hand it to them, you feel a little odd and awkward. And you wished, oh, I wish I would have done better on this. That's behind our passage today. Our passage today was written by the Apostle Paul to some Christians where he was urging them to send money to some poor folks far away. And in order to encourage them to do it, he wants them to feel good about what they give. So he gives the example of some other Christians nearby who, although they were extremely poor, gave out of their poverty to other people and how they were filled with joy because they did it. And then the Apostle Paul comes to our verse in 2 Corinthians 8, and he says, no, I can think of an even better thing to motivate you. Here's what he says to motivate these people to give in a way that they will be glad. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. There are not many passages that are Christmas passages in the Bible. And so one of the challenges of being a pastor is you cover them eventually all in your time at a church. We looked at this passage some 13 years ago, but it is a wonderful one. And I hope we can look at it through a slightly different angle today and it'll be helpful to you. This passage basically says three things. Jesus Christ was rich. Jesus Christ became poor. And he did so so that you could become rich. Let's think about those one by one. Jesus Christ was rich. Many people think of Jesus as starting, as beginning in Bethlehem when he was born as a human being. But the Bible's clear that, that he was an eternal being. The Bible says he was before all things. The early Christians had a saying about him, and that saying is, there never was when he was not. That is, he existed forever, already, before he was born as a human in Bethlehem. And so, because he was eternally preexistent in heaven, it tells us a lot about what he had. All the things that we see that we consider wealth come out of him. We might say first that Jesus Christ was rich in possessions. Picture him on his throne in heaven. The universe that he has made is at his behest. He says in Psalm 50, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for all the world is mine and everything in it. Think about that. If you've ever driven east to west in Pennsylvania, you can't help but be stunned by the number of trees Penn's Wood, Pennsylvania. Just millions upon millions of trees. But this is just one state out of 50. That is just one country out of a continent. That is just one continent out of the world. And yet all the wood, every twig and branch and trunk, 
belongs to Jesus Christ. The ore in every mine belongs to him. The diamonds in South Africa. The wealth of companies. Every Fortune 500 company, every international corporation, it is all owned by the Lord God Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the owner of the food in every restaurant. From the corner Jewish deli, which is great stuff, to a five-star restaurant. It all comes from him. Every city in the world is his. Think of that. We feel privileged when we get to visit London or Paris or Tokyo or Rio or Moscow or New York City. Jesus Christ owns the key to every city there. They are his. Every building in every city, every room with a view belongs to him. Every beachfront property is his. Jesus Christ has always been extremely wealthy. And then after he created the world, as I say, everything on it is his. The animal world is entirely his. We admire documentaries on public television or on the BBC documentaries with David Attenborough talking about planet Earth and the birds and the creatures. And I wish I could do him better. I really do. And we're stunned at, at the variety of colors and sounds and the way that they act. Well, Jesus Christ owns them. He keeps them alive. They are in his backyard, as it were. They are in his zoo, his menagerie. He owns every person in the world. We read the biographies or hear the biographies of famous people, the rich, the, the admired, and we think, oh, it would be so good to have access to such interesting people. Wouldn't it be neat to hobnob for a while with celebrities or with sports figures or with politicians or musicians? Wouldn't we love some insider privileges? Wouldn't it be great to just be there present, standing by the wall, listening to the discussions in the Oval Office when the deep things of international policy are discussed. We envy this sort of thing. We would love to be more connected with people that are great and good. Um, well, one of our members, I didn't know that Ashley, formerly Ashley Horning, was going to be here today, but Ashley grew up in our church, and uh, after she graduated from school, she became an um, intern at the White House. And then later, she worked for Senator Rick Santorum on Capitol Hill. Later, she married Rick Santorum's chief of staff, who often also happens to be here. And one day, Verna and I um, visited her in Washington, D.C., and uh, she took us on a tour of the Capitol building. Now we got to places where there were big guards with um, uh, signs and badges standing cross-armed at certain entrances. Ashley just flashes her little badge. Absolutely. The door's open. We walk in. This is the kind of thing that, as humans, we think, oh, that is so neat. Jesus Christ owns access to every room and every building and every person on the planet. And not only that, Jesus has always owned what is beyond the earth, in outer space. When the Hubble telescope first started sending pictures back to earth, we learned the greater magnitude of the universe than we had ever dreamed. I think it was around 2010 when astronomers had to alter their conception of how many galaxies exist in the universe. Till that time, it was believed the universe held some 50 billion galaxies. But as Hubble would take a slice of the pie and people could see further than they ever did, 
and another slice and another. They had to rearrange that and say that, no, it is probably more like there are a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. Jesus Christ has always had every one of them in his hip pocket. Not only was Jesus rich in positions, in possessions, I should say, but he is rich also in that he has the ability to create far more if he wanted to. You may recall the Greek myth about King Midas, who everything he touched turned to gold. Well, Jesus could do that and more. It says of God in Psalm 33, for he spoke and it came to be. That's the way it is with him. He speaks worlds into existence. He could make another universe as big as this one or bigger if he so choose. Maybe he already has. I don't know. Jesus was always rich in honor. Now, we tend to think that people who are honored have a certain wealth that we admire. In January 15th, 2009, U.S. Air Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport and shortly after takeoff, ran into a flock of Canadian geese that were sucked into the engine. The plane was in great difficulty. The pilot, Chesley Sully Sullenberg, somehow maneuvered with incredible skill to land that plane in the Hudson River, just off of Midtown Manhattan. Within 24 hours, he was a national hero. His face was on the front of every magazine. He was covered on every TV program. He was known around the world, and he was the guest of talk shows. Even if he had little money, and I take it he had some, he was made immeasurably rich on that day through the honor that he had. Now, think in parallel of the honor that Jesus Christ had in heaven before he ever came down to Bethlehem. We read in the book of Revelation, that there are certain beings in heaven whose only purpose is night and day to lie prostrate in front of that throne and give him praise. Day and night, Charles Spurgeon wrote many years ago, and some of this outline from this sermon I got from him, day and night, the smoking incense of praise ascended before him by spirits who bowed in reverence. And here's what Spurgeon adds. Can you imagine the sweetness of the harmony of their singing that perpetually poured into the ears of Jesus? Songs invented, created, orchestrated, and performed for his glory perpetually from eons ago. He was rich in honor. Now, men tend to want honor and respect. Women gravitate more to a desire for love. And Jesus was also rich in love. Think about this. Herod the Great, who was the king at the time that Jesus was born, was hated by many people. He was hated because he was selfish and he was cruel and he ruled for himself instead of for anybody else. He ordered that at his death, thousands of people would be slain so that there would be mourning all over the country so that at his funeral, somebody would be weeping because he knew nobody would be weeping if he only died alone, which is why he was hated. Jesus Christ was the exact opposite of that. He was not poor in love. We shouldn't picture Jesus as being up in outer space in some cold, bloodless, cheerless, loveless universe 
And he comes down to our warm blue planet in order to get our love because his soul was solitary. No, no. Jesus in heaven was loved by angels. Angels in heaven did not just reverence Christ. They adored Christ. As we read the Christmas narrative, we don't get the idea that it went like this. We don't get the idea that God is saying, oh, there's to be a birth. There needs to be an announcement to Mary. There needs to be an announcement to Joseph. Who is willing to work overtime on this holiday and sacrifice in order to go down there and make the word known? No, no. They came to sing to the shepherds. They doubtless fought over themselves to get down there and have the privilege of being the ones who were there to honor the birth of the Savior. They would rather be there than at home in heaven. They didn't want to be anywhere else because they loved him so. This is part of the wealth that Jesus Christ has always had. But he was not only loved in heaven by those who were inferior to him, angels, he was loved eternally in heaven by his equals. And by his equals, I mean the other members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Think of that for a moment. When I hear the term the Holy Spirit, although I'm glad for him, I often feel a certain discomfort because of that adjective. He is the Holy Spirit. He has a penetrating gaze that can see into the furthest resources and darkness of my soul, and it makes a person feel, my goodness, the gaze of God on my flaws. But the Holy Spirit, who is absolute purity himself, has always been irresistibly drawn to Jesus Christ. And Jesus has always felt that love. And then you take the Father, the other person of the Trinity. Here is God the Father. God the Father is the ultimate source of everything beautiful, entertaining, intriguing, stimulating, wonderful, and pleasant in the entire universe. God the Father is so great that, well, who would he go to if he wanted to be entertained? Would he talk to humans? That would be like a Harvard professor who learned how to speak the language of ants. It might be interesting for about 30 seconds, but the, the, the conversation is really not going to increase your knowledge or be that stimulating. The only thing that can mesmerize God the Father is to look in the mirror because he himself is the only one great enough to be mesmerizing to a divine being. Yet when God the Father looks at his son, he is looking in the mirror. Jesus Christ is his equal in every sense. And God the Father loves the son. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. This love that Jesus experienced before he ever came to earth, we might call was an insider love. By an insider love, I mean this. You're at a restaurant. Perhaps you're on a business trip. You have to sit by yourself. You're lonely with your menu and your plate. And you look over at a table with maybe six or eight people. Maybe it's a circular table where all their faces are toward one another. Maybe there's candlelight. You hear the tinkling of glasses. You hear the easy conversation. You hear the ready laughter. And you think to yourself, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be in that atmosphere right now, loved, liked, and invited? Or maybe... You look at uh, a band that travels, and they obviously are so enjoying each other's company as they play their instruments from the front, or the easy um, camaraderie of 
All the actors on a movie set as they joke with one another between the scenes. This is the kind of thing that Jesus Christ had as he, please forgive the irreverence of it, you'll know what I mean, as he hobnobbed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit from eternity. Some of you, I know, because you have said so, are poor conversationalists. You just don't have the witty reply when people are joking. You can't jump into the repartee that is so delightful that you hear among people who are quick on their feet, and you would love to be that. Jesus Christ had a back and forth continually with the most stimulating beings in the universe forever before he was ever born in Bethlehem. In summary, Jesus Christ was rich. But Jesus Christ, we read, became poor. Here's how one man put it. He said, if we were to be told a tale about a king who left all his palaces and all his wealth because he was smitten by some lovely peasant girl, we would consider it charming to hear. But he said, when we hear the Christmas story of God becoming a human in Bethlehem, often our hearts are scarcely touched because we've heard it so often. Oh, may it be that somehow by hearing about Jesus becoming poor, we may be smitten again with exactly what it was that he did. Think about this. We don't know exactly how or exactly when the whole angelic world was informed that their beloved son of God was going to become a human. That, as Charles Spurgeon once said, the prince of light and majesty would shroud himself in clay flesh, become a baby, and live and die. But picture how surprised those angels must have been. Picture what kind of rumors and discussions must have floated around in heaven. We know this thing kind of took place because we read in 1 Timothy 3, Paul writes, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body and he was seen by angels. The Bible goes out of its way to talk about angels viewing the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Here's what 1 Peter says in chapter 1. Even angels long to look into such things. So you have these beings that if we were to see now, we'd fall on our face in fear because they're so glorious, and they are straining their necks to get a better picture of what exactly is happening as this great being whom they worship and adore comes down to earth. Think about it. You can picture it. Picture as his real crown is taken off, as uh, we might imagine a robe of stars is folded up, Someone imagines golden slippers, all these things, of course, are just the imagination. And he descends, and as he descends, he somehow enters unconsciousness and slips into the womb of a girl. And so the angels follow him to earth and are stunned by what they see of this impoverishment. And so we read that the Gabriel announced to Mary, then to Joseph, that God has come now in human flesh. And here's what Spurgeon says. And now, the one upon whose shoulders the universe hangs, he now hangs at his mother's breast. And he who created all things now must become so weak that he must be carried 
by a woman. The angels sang to the shepherds about this. The angels look and think, where will he sleep? In Caesar's palace? No. In a room with the stench of cattle dung and in a trough that has the slobber of oxen in it. What will he wear? He'll wear the rags of impoverished people. Where will he live? Before terribly long, he has to flee to Egypt as an infant because he's about to be murdered. When the murderers die and he comes back to the land, his family fears that he'll be murdered again. And so they have to return back to Nazareth. What will he do? Well, we read that the hands that made the worlds now hold a hammer and nails in a carpenter shop. He goes to school with other kids. He catches colds. He falls down and he bleeds just like everybody else. As he grows older, his impoverishment becomes a little more poignant. John the Baptist is baptizing at the Jordan River. Jesus is standing in line. Every single person in that line is a sinner. Jesus rubs shoulders with them to go through the ritual of sinners being cleansed. After that, Jesus goes into the wilderness and he is tempted by, think about this, he is tempted by the devil. He is feet away from the being that revolted against him in heaven and with his awful dragon tail brought a third of heaven's angels down to earth with him. Satan to Jesus must carry a stench. He is an absolute loathsome being. Satan is like raw, liquid sin standing in front of the pure Son of God. And the pure Son of God must endure being taunted and tempted by that being. That being and every angel that he has compromised to become demonic hates the Lord Jesus with every fiber of his being. They are talking in the wilderness. It is like if you were given a wonderful winter coat, an expensive winter coat, Camel colored, maybe, maybe cashmere, maybe suede. And then wherever you were standing in a store, in come a bunch of guys who have just gotten off work from the mechanic shop or from a coal mine. And they are filled with grime as they jostle you. All their grit and dirt brushes onto your robe. That is exactly what Jesus experienced as he walked through this earth with Satan and with sinful people. We follow his career where his impoverishment becomes even more poignant. We, we read that the one who gives a harvest in every field of the world in, to every farmer must pick figs from a tree as he walks by to satisfy his hunger. We read that the one who is wealthy beyond words in heaven must now depend upon the charity of other people in order to eat. We read, as Spurgeon said, that the one who carved every river that is in the world must ask the Samaritan woman from a drink at the well. We read that as it was, he who rode the clouds has to walk with weary feet on the roads of Galilee. As he travels, he notices the animals. He sees a little fox run into its hole. He looks at the birds as they flutter back to their nests. And yet he has to ask himself, I wonder where I'll be able to sleep tonight. He who had been waited on by angels takes on the dress of a slave at the Last Supper, takes a towel and a basin, and washes the feet of his disciples. During his ministry, his poverty, 
He trudges dusty roads. His disciples are terribly slow to learn. He heals 10 lepers, the most marvelous healing anyone could imagine. And nine of them go away without so much of a nod in thank you. He is mocked by drunken people as if he were drunk himself. He endures the hostility of the Pharisees. You think you and I have workplace politics that are difficult to deal with? Oh, what he dealt with all the time. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. In Gethsemane, he sweat great drops of blood. And when he came to trial at the end of his life, he was judged by people who were infinitely his intellectual inferiors. It would be, this is a terrible parallel. It doesn't even nearly approach it. But it would be like you are on trial for your life where you will be tortured to death if you are found guilty and your um, jury are a bunch of second graders. This is what it was like. And then he was given over to unthinkable cruelty. One final point about his poverty. People, somebody has noticed, that are born into poverty sometimes feel it less than people who used to have wealth and have lost it. Think about Nazi Germany and all the people that were sent to concentration camps and lived through it, or all the people who had to flee. Many Jewish people fled, fled to other countries, fled to the United States, and in their home countries where they were doctors and professors and lawyers and the elites of society, now they are scrubbing floors and delivering pizza. They talk about what they left behind. They think about what they used to have. Ah, they say, I, I've known better times than this. Jesus had known far better times than this. And this is what he did. So now comes the question, why did he become poor? And that comes to our third and last part. He became poor for you, for me. The result of Christ's poverty was our wealth. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Who is the you and the your in this sentence that Jesus came to make rich? Well, let's consider the people in this room. Some of you who are Christians became Christians later in life. Perhaps you kept Jesus Christ at bay for decades. Perhaps you lived horribly before you became a Christian. For some of us, perhaps there was a vice, hardly a vice, I would say, that maybe you did not sample at one time or another. Others of you can think of, before you became a Christian, the people you hurt, the bad example you set, the friends that you encouraged away from the true path, some of those who perhaps have died now, some of whom perhaps have died unbelieving, and you feel great sadness over that. Others of you, maybe during your unbelieving years, were self-righteous that you weren't as bad as these people, and your self-righteousness tripped. Jesus Christ came to make you wealthy. Some of you who are Christians were saved early in life, but you say to yourself, oh, I know I believe since I was a child. I know my sins are forgiven, but my love for him is so cold. I have served him so poorly. And even today, there are areas of my life that I've deliberately kept him from sweeping clean. Even now, you might say, I sit in church and I have sinful thoughts of one kind or another. Yet this passage says that he came, that you 
might be rich for your sakes, that you might become rich. Well, some of you can't even call a square foot of land as your own. You don't own any property. Others, your life didn't fall out as planned. Maybe your savings were lost through medical bills, through a divorce you didn't want, through paying for a child's education, and you don't know how you're going to pay the next month's bills. God says that Jesus Christ has come to make you rich. You are rich, Christian, in possessions. Think of this. 1 Corinthians 3 says, All things are yours, whether the world or life or death, all things are yours. What does he mean by that when he says that the world is yours? Well, do you remember that poem, For Want of a Nail? For, for, for want of a nail, the horseshoe was lost. For want of a horseshoe, the horse was lost. For want of the horse, the messenger was lost. For want of the messenger, the battle was lost. And for want of the battle, the war was lost. Just because of a little nail that came off of a horse's shoe that was carrying an important message from the general. Well, when the Bible says that all things are yours, what it means, I think, is something like this. The exact opposite of that little poem. In other words, every little thing that has ever happened during your lifetime and before touches other things, which touch other things, which touch other things. And all those things, the Bible says, God has orchestrated every one of them, even things that don't seem like they relate to you. He has orchestrated them all for your good. When he says that life is yours, maybe this is part of what he means. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says that your trials are achieving for you an eternal glory that far outweighs them all because they scrub your soul. They make you more holy. They make you feel your need for Christ more and to try to live more like him. And therefore, God will reward your efforts at holiness in the next life. And your heaven will become more heavenly because of the trials that he has sent to you. Even death is yours, you rich Christians, and I with you. Because if we could only grasp what death is like for a Christian, it would change the way we think about it. In Luke, Jesus told this parable about the rich man who did not honor God and poor Lazarus, who did honor God. The time came, we read, when the beggar died, and here's a little sentence, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Think about that and what it says about the death of a believer. When you die, if you're a believer in Jesus, you don't go to heaven through some impersonal tube that takes you in a time warp to some other place. It's not also that at the end of your journey when you die, there was an angel, rather clinical, with a clipboard checking to see if the serial number matches what he has on his thing. Yes, 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 you're here. Yes, okay, you go to a gate number 16. It's just down the aisle. No, no, no. The Bible says that when you die, you're carried there to bliss by angels. These are angels who the Bible says are servants of people for whom Christ died, which means that these angels who will carry you, they know your name. And doubtless, they will speak it to you as they escort you to heaven to let you know that they know who you are. They were there 
when you were born. They've known and followed your life with interest all the way through, and they personally will usher you. And therefore, the moment you die, rich Christian, you will be in a warm, enveloping atmosphere and will be safely ushered to paradise by angels. And that's why the hymn says, Jesus lives and death is now, but my entrance into glory. Courage then, my soul, for thou hast a crown of life before thee. Ah, but perhaps you're frowning as I say this. Perhaps you're thinking, look, Steve, you don't know all that is not under our Christmas tree this year. And you're talking about all these riches. Well, think about a billionaire who has a son. Think of that son as 14 years old. Is dad going to give him the checkbook and say, here it is, son, go spend it? No, no. He's going to say, son, all that you see, it's yours. I am keeping it in trust for you. I am overseeing the stocks. I am overseeing the portfolio. And you will receive it when I die. And meanwhile, be patient. It is coming. Christian, if you died in a car accident today, in that very hour, all that is in heaven and on earth would be yours because you were an heir of Jesus Christ. It's like this. Hong Kong was run by the British for many years. China deeply wanted to rule Hong Kong. And in 1985, the British and the Chinese signed a pact that said that China would receive oversight of Hong Kong 15, um, 13 years hence in 1997. That sounds like 12, doesn't it? Anyway, in those years hence. And the Chinese are thinking, okay, this is a slow train, but it is a slow train coming. And the reason they could wait is that they know year by year the calendar pages are torn off and it is certainly coming. That is the way with you and heaven. So let's consider how to, what to do with these things that we've been talking about. Let me speak first to those of you who may not consider yourselves Christians. And you're a guest today, and you just want to be reverent and polite to your Christian friends or family, perhaps. We're awfully glad you're here. Most of what we've been talking about today truly does not apply to you if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shares his wealth with his children the way that you share your wealth with your children. A passage that might apply to you would be this from the book of Revelation. You say, I'm rich. I don't need a thing. But you do not realize that spiritually you are poor and blind and naked. Every shred of joy that you have had in life has been given to you by Jesus Christ. But as the years progress, they are slipping through your fingers. Every day, if you're not a friend, a child of Jesus Christ, I say this with sadness, not with anything else. If you're not a friend of Jesus Christ, every day you lose another 24 hours of the pleasures of this world that you will never see again after this life. And your poverty in the life to come will be inexpressible. 
But Jesus Christ came to make people who have ignored him or even deliberately resisted him, he came to make you rich. He came to give wealth to people who have given him no thought or time. And the message to you today is this. If you will lay down your resistance, if you will repent and believe, you can leave this room as the heir of everything in the universe because of the kindness and generosity that Jesus Christ holds out to you. And I say to those of you who are Christians and you know it, this passage just says strongly, Christian, talk to yourself about your wealth. It is common among humans in general, and sadly it's true of we who are Christians as well, to poor mouth all day long. Why did such and such happen to me at work? Why did such and such not happen to me at promotions? Why did such and such happen at home? Why do I feel physically bad so much of the time? Why are my finances so tight? I wish, I wish that girl would marry me. I wish, I wish I had never married. I wish this, and I wish that. But our verse says, quote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, it's something that you are so acquainted with, it is saying, act like you know it. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself about the wealth that is yours through Jesus. An old Puritan centuries ago once said this, the lowest Christian, the Christian who has been the worst Christian in this room, the Christian here who knows the least about the Bible, the Christian who has disappointed others and your family and Christ more than anyone here, the lowest Christian in this room has union with Christ. You are part of the bride of Christ. Jesus calls you part of his very body. You have communion with God the Father. The Bible says that you are a partaker of the very nature of Jesus Christ. You have a right and a title to all the promises God has given in the Bible. For you, the curse, all the sting is taken out of the curse because the curse is only temporary for you. You are a partaker of the inheritance of God's saints in light. For you, the lowest Christian in this room, you have been declared not guilty, and fit to enter heaven. The lowest Christian in this room, you have a claim on all that Christ has done and all that Christ has suffered. You have an inheritance waiting where neither moth nor rust corrupt and where thieves never break through and steal. God is your portion, Christian. Christ is your Savior and brother. The Holy Spirit is your comforter. And angels are your guardians. And God swears with an uplifted hand, all things are yours. They are yours because he who is rich for your sakes became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Will we think about these things, please, in silent prayer as the choir comes up?
Now may the Christ, who alone is rich, may he give you the ability to be poor in spirit. And may he shower you with the riches of faith and the riches of obedience. Praise be to him who was rich and became poor and made us rich. The grace of this Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.